You're listening to the Songbirds Radio Hour, recorded live in Chattanooga, Tennessee. This episode is a tribute to the Empress of the Blues, goddess of Chattanooga's Big Nine, Bessie Smith. We're Zoe and the Vanguard. I'm Zoe, and we're your house band. Tonight, we have Dr. Michelle Scott, Professor of History and Gender Studies at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and author of Blues Empress in Black Chattanooga, Bessie Smith and the Emerging Urban South, which influenced the 2015 film, Bessie. We also have performer Nashawn Calloway, a music teacher at Chattanooga Center for Creative Arts, who will be taking you on a performance journey through the music of Bessie Smith. Your host today is Reed Caldwell, the executive director of the Songbirds Foundation. Lead different 
You're listening to Songbirds Radio Hour. Here's your host, Reed Caldwell. Hey everyone, my name is Reed Caldwell and I'm the Executive Director of the Songbirds Foundation. I'd like to welcome you to our very first Songbirds Radio Hour. At this point, you might be asking yourself, why the radio? Why not a more contemporary medium like YouTube or the TikToks? Well, I wanted to do this because radio absolutely changed my life. I grew up in Mississippi and sometime in the late 1980s, I remember the public radio station in Oxford, Mississippi played a full album by the blues legend Sonny Boy Williamson, which I believe was some of the Bluebird recordings from the late 1930s, early 1940s. Anyway, I got excited and I grabbed a Maxell tape and I slammed it in my boombox and recorded the performance off the radio. I just sat there in the middle of my ugly yellowish green shag carpet and was absolutely mesmerized by that powerful music. It's amazing what someone with soul can do with just three simple chords. At that time, I was just learning the guitar, and I listened to that tape over and over and over again for inspiration until my Sony Soundwriter boombox ate the tape. I remember the horrifying melting sound it made as the tape slowly intertwined with the gears slipping and slurring to a stop and the experience of pulling that crinkled tape out of the player and carefully smoothing it smoothing it and then rewinding it with a pencil eraser all the time praying that I hadn't ruined the recording luckily it still played although it did have a slight warble but I guess a warble that actually gave it an even more hauntingly bluesy sound I want you to fly down on Shannon Street. 
I worked and worked to match the guitar playing on that album. And although I never reached that peak, the experience did reframe my life. It pushed me to seek other blues musicians and to learn more about my culture and blues culture and its deep roots in the South. It gave me perspective and a drive to play music. Then music did an absolute number on me and here I am 30 years later passing on those same blues chords and those amazing songs onto thousands of kids across the South who were learning to play the guitar through our Guitars for Kids program. That half-eaten tape with its offbeat canner and poor 1930s recording to radio to Maxell tape sound quality helped inspire me to create the Songbirds Guitars for Kids program, a program that over the past five years has provided thousands of free guitars and over a quarter of a million hours of free guitar lessons and in-depth music therapy to kids across the South. So all of this, all of Songbirds, traces back to the radio. I mean, who plays an album from cover to cover with no ads? Public radio does just that. For that matter, who even plays an album that was recorded as far back as the 1930s? Public radio does. Like public radio, Songbirds is here to stimulate conversation, preserve history, promote cultures, spur creativity, and above all else, share the joy of music. So we here at Songbirds are proud to be a very small part of the epic story of public radio and to launch the Songbirds Radio Hour. Now, enough of my stories of green shag carpet and the most nostalgic use for a pencil eraser and on with the show. Today we'll be talking about Bessie Smith, the Empress of the Blues, and discussing her childhood here in Chattanooga and what it was like for her to grow up near the city's famous 9th Street, which is now known as Martin Luther King Boulevard. If you're from Chattanooga and you're of a certain age, you probably remember the Big Nine. If you're neither of those things, the Big Nine was a thriving black community and cultural hub with lots of black-owned businesses, homes, and as we will talk about tonight, lots and lots and lots of music. Tonight we'll be talking with Dr. Michelle Scott, the author of Blues Empress and Black Chattanooga, Bessie Smith and the Emerging Urban South. For those of you who maybe just aren't that interested in reading, it's the book that influenced the 2015 HBO film, Bessie. This episode will also feature music from Nashawn Calloway, who was a 2020 Music Teacher of Excellence at Chattanooga's Center for Creative Arts. Her and her band will be performing some of Bessie Smith's most popular songs. But before we get to all that, let's give it up for our house band making their debut performance, Zoe and the Vanguard.
You're listening to Songbirds Radio Hour. 
Here's your host, Reed Caldwell. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm so pleasantly just impressed with that band. What an amazing, we just, the best house band we could possibly have. So um, now I'm excited to introduce our very first Songbirds Radio Hour guest, Dr. Michelle Scott. Dr. Scott is the professor. Yes. Dr. Scott is a professor of history at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and she earned her bachelor's degree at Stanford University and her doctoral degree at Cornell University, just, you know, two run-of-the-mill, two run-of-the-mill schools. Uh, <clears throat> and her research and teaching interests include black musical and entertainment culture, black women's studies, African-American history, 20th century United States history, and civil rights activism. <clears throat> She's got a new book coming out in February 2023, Time Black Vaudeville and the Theater Owners Booking Association in Jazz Age America. Got it right, yeah. Which is a study of the origins and economic ramifications of the 1920s National Black Vaudeville Theater Circuit that was based here in Chattanooga. So please welcome Dr. Michelle Scott. Hello. Welcome to Songbirds. We're so glad to have you. I'm glad to be here. After all that long introduction, I was like, how many degrees does it take to work my actual microphone pack? But it worked. <laughs> it's, a, it's amazing. It's a, it's a long list of great degrees and all the fun stuff. Let's start off by talking about how Ninth Street became a thriving black community back in the early part of the 20th century. Sure. So Ninth Street, which is now MLK, as you guys all know, um, really gets its start right after the close of the Civil War and the emancipation of African-American slaves. And so in the 1860s, 1870s, a lot of the land that had been around um, what is now um, East 9th Street wasn't really desirable. So, you know, the war is fought here. So you're fighting to rebuild the infrastructure of the territory in downtown Chattanooga or what will become downtown Chattanooga. So a lot of the land that African-Americans were actually able to buy was really seen as something that white citizens didn't want to purchase, right? And so they're able to come into the downtown area um, also because segregation's a little delayed in Chattanooga. It's a little bit more progressive here. Um, and buy restaurants, boarding houses, um, professional businesses alongside their white counterparts and their immigrant counterparts at the same time. So it becomes a really thriving, um, diverse, but segregated district by the time we get to 1900. Yeah. So give us a little bit about what life was like on 9th Street around that time. So if you took a picture of a mental picture of, of 1900 Chattanooga, you have to take account of the sounds, the smells, and the sights all together. So if you think of West 9th Street and East 9th Street meeting up where the Reed House is right now, you have to take into account that you have jewelry stores, drug stores, dental offices, undertakers, all the way at the very end of East 9th Street, you have coal and timber yards. All of these businesses are happening at the same time. In 1900, it's also really a pre-modern time. So you'll have the beginning of automobile traffic alongside a horse and buggies, right? So you can kind of imagine the cacophony of sounds. So you're hearing street vendors, you're hearing the clattering of, of horse carts being taken down the street. You're seeing an intermingling of people going about their everyday lives in terms of their, their daily business. 
um, in a segregated moment, but they're all in the same street. You also have to take account of the smells, right? At the same time that, you know, this is pre-heavily sanitation. So horses are doing their horse business <laughs> in the middle of 9th Street, all at, this, at the same time. So it's a thriving um, environment. And can you kind of take a mental picture of like the cacophony of sounds and visual images that is 9th Street. Let's, now we've kind of got a little bit of early history of 9th Street. Let's talk a little bit about who we're here to talk about tonight. Let's talk about Bessie Smith. Talk about how living in Chattanooga helped kind of shape her musical life and career. So Bessie Smith is the person that she became to be because of living in Chattanooga. She starts as a street performer, so she doesn't have former musical training. And she's starting around the age of nine or 10. So she lives in Blue Goose Hollow. She's walking from Blue Goose Hollow with her older brother, because they're not going to let a young girl out by herself. And she's singing very adult songs um, at nine or 10. So she's singing, you know, about Bill Bailey, won't you please come home? And she's 10 years old um, for pennies, nickels, and dimes. Um, and she's getting her start because Chattanooga, particularly 9th Street, is kind of a haven for street culture. So she's singing on one corner where Lovey Austin will be singing on another, where Velida Snow might be playing her fiddle on another, where an early Roland Hayes is bucking wing dancing before he becomes a classical opera tenor, all at the same time. So she's not alone. She's in this thriving environment of a street musical culture. When Bessie would go down to 9th Street to sing on the corners, what kind of sights and sounds would she see in particular? And like maybe elaborate a little bit more on the types of music she might hear in some of the clubs and how that really moved her forward. So she would hear, this would be um, before blues, right? She's known as the Empress of the Blues, but when she's performing into the 1910s, so this is before the classic blues when we think of it now. She'd be hearing folk ballads. She'd be hearing um, songs that came from the traveling minstrel shows or band music that's coming in from the circuses. And all of this is coming in at the same time because of the location of Chattanooga with the terminal station and Union Station. Performances can come in, play one night in Chattanooga, and then go on their way to Atlanta or go to Birmingham. And so she's be able to hear professional music, but she's also able to hear street music. People who are using music and melodies to sell their wares from street parks, right? Um, she comes from a family where her father was a lay Baptist minister and her mother was a laundress. So she would have heard religious hymns being hummed as her mother is doing work. So she had a musical background that was not professional, but it was very much imbibed in her everyday life. And she took all of that to the street corner when she's singing, won't you come home, Bill Bailey, or something like Frankie and Johnny, you know, at 10 or 12. Why do you think the history of 9th Street isn't remembered on a national level like other black commerce districts like your Bill Streets or your Bourbon Streets and things like that? I was thinking about this, and even your, your Bill Streets or your Bourbon Streets are not what they used to be. So at the time that she's singing in the 1910s and 20s, um, black commercial districts existed in every city across the country um, where African Americans resided. So 9th Street wasn't unusual. What did make it unusual was the proximity to the fact that you could get to Birmingham, that you could get to Atlanta, that you could make these connections with other black communities. And so I think a lot of the way that we remember or disremember black communities has a way to do with how we think about tourism. Um, like if you think of black music in places like Harlem, you remember it because the Apollo is still there and people are still trying to put life into that theater. But if you think about Bill Street, Bill Street was 20 blocks, it's now four, right? And so 
It has a lot to do with how city boosts their art and entertainment culture, and also how music um, history is taught or not taught in schools. So if you don't hear anything about Bessie Smith and you don't know the links between a Bessie Smith and a, a visual presence like Lizzo or Beyonce or Meg Thee Stallion, then you have no really need to kind of remember this history. So I think a lot of it has to do with the investment of folks who live in the town. And unfortunately, um, the way that 9th Street went, a lot of the streets that were renamed Martin Luther King Boulevard Street Lane became places where a lot of that early history was disremembered and the history of violence and crime is then the story of those MLK streets, right? So I think a lot of it has to do with the way cities look at remembrance and history and how media looks at the black past in, in, the, in urban life. We, earlier we were talking about, uh, you mentioned Lizzo and Beyonce. Talk, talk a little bit about more about Bessie's image and how that, you, we, we had a really good conversation. Maybe we can just kind of rehash that conversation a bit. Yeah, I, I play Bessie Smith, or I play music in every class that I teach. Um, sometimes my kids love it, sometimes they don't. When I say kids, these are college students. They're, they're kids, they're, okay. But the way that I get to them is that they'll say, I have no interest in this blue stuff, what are you talking about? And I'll play a modern contemporary song. I'll play something by Lizzo, I'll play something by Mick the Stallion or Cardi B, and then I'll play them a Bessie Smith song. And I'm like, the themes are the same. The tempo and the rhythms come from this blues music. You wouldn't have a hip hop unless you had a blues. Um, and the freedom that, uh, that particularly women had within singing in these genres come from blues music. And once they can see their own individual everyday lives in the music they're listening to, they realize, okay, I'm not that far away from blues. It's not just the music that, you know, wandering guitar men <laughs> play. It's actually something that can be lived and heard in the way that we think of contemporary music. Yeah. You were also talking a little bit about, about just the image, how much the images today is very, they've got, you know, makeup artists and all this stuff. And, and, and you said, you, said uh, you know, Bessie could have just been your aunt. Yeah, the image of Bessie Smith is what I like the most because when you put her picture up on the screen alongside Ma Rainey or Levy Austin or Alberta Hunter, these are everyday African-American women. A lot of them are darker skinned, um, which in a society where there is a constant debate between being light skinned versus being dark skinned in African-American communities, Bessie Smith was a proud, voluptuous, dark skinned woman who sang her truth at a time where she wasn't overly manufactured. I mean, she had, you know, there's a dress over here. She had the spangles and the feathers and the boas, which were the, you know, the adornment of the time. But she could have been your aunt. She could have been your sister. And I think that drew in listeners because they saw themselves reflected on that stage, right? They were just one feather boa away <laughs> from being the empress of the blues. And it made that connection more tight between the audience and the performer. That's a, I mean, that's a really powerful image you know, I, I'm not sure that, that I'm one feather bow away from being Bessie Smith, but <laughs> it is certainly something that I would aspire to. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with Dr. Scott for a Q&A session shortly. But before that, I would like to take a minute to remember a local legend. Over my life, I've met and interviewed hundreds of musicians. But the biggest highlight of my career was interviewing Fred Cash and Sam Gooden of The Impressions. Fred and Sam, along with Curtis Mayfield, left an indelible mark on music, creating iconic songs like We're a Winner, Keep on Pushing, and Choice of Colors. Iconic songs that gave people hope when there just wasn't a whole lot of hope to go around. 
They took risk with their careers to sing the songs that meant something to them and to the world. Even the great James Brown told them that maybe, just maybe they should tone it down and be careful where and when they sang their songs. But as Fred so eloquently put it, they wanted to hear those songs and we wanted to sing them. These songs became the unofficial anthem of the civil rights movement and gave voice to a generation. As you can see from our exhibit over there and over there and back there, they also were the coolest guys on the planet. They toured the world creating lasting music, music that mattered. It hurts my heart to say that we lost Sam Gooden a few weeks ago and what a hard loss it was. And as a small token to honor an epic life, we would like to take a minute to pay tribute to the late Sam Gooden. So during the upcoming excerpt from our larger Big Nine mini doc, you'll hear two voices. The first is the voice of Fred Cash and the second is Sam Gooden. Say it's all right. It's all right. Sam and myself, as you knew, grew up together. There was a house between us, then there was Sam's house. Then I was on this side. That was my home. So we got ready to go try to sing in these little clubs. I sneak out that window. And the guys would come by in the car turn the motor off, and let it cold stone down the hill. I jump in the car. When they get down the hill, they crank it up. We go to the club down on 9th Street. And my love, she will know from morning to noon and night. And she's got to say it's alright. Back during that time, you know, there was a lot of, there was a lot of bands would come through here in the early days, you know. Like I said, there was a club on Big Nine, uh, the Brown Derby. And uh, I'd go in there and I'd look at some man, you know, to myself. That's what I want to do when I grow up. I want to be a musician like that, where we can entertain, you know. Keep At, at, at one time, you, you, you look at a situation when you get on tour with other acts, and most time, you went south, all through the south, all of the cities, all of the states in the south is where you went. And uh, you get a chance to, to see what's going on. You, you run into signs, you see signs. You know you can't stay at this hotel. You know you can't do this. You, uh, you, you know the hotel that you have to go to to, uh, to be accepted. And restaurant, you didn't have none of those. You, you had to find, go across town to try to find the restaurant. But Curtis at that time, I think he had his his fingers, he was a young guy, he was younger than all of us, you know? But he had his fingers on the puff, 
as far as what was going on with Martin Luther King, and he was able to write these songs about what was happening, you know. Keep on pushing, choice of colors, people get ready, you know. He was telling me a lot of time that they would sing those songs for inspiration. Like we recorded Amen, big tune, Amen, Amen. They sang them songs as they marched, you know. But uh, we was just on the road working so much and heard about Martin Luther King them singing these songs. Man, that was a big deal to us. So they got their inspiration from a lot of those songs. He was writing because he was trying to uplift uh, the black people spirit because like we're winner, it's just letting them know that, hey, no matter what anybody say, we are a winner. We, we are moving up. We're not staying down. We're holding our heads up. And uh, we are, we're just as good as anybody else. And that's uh, where we carry. We carry that through the South on our back. You just thank the Lord. You're listening to Songbirds Radio Hour. All right, so that was a small piece of our larger Big Nine documentary that you can watch during your tour of the museum. It's right over there and you can enjoy it along with all the other, the impressions exhibit and the exhibit on the Big Nine. We're still adding to that documentary. We actually interviewed Dr. Scott today for that interview. Thank you for doing that. Um, and speaking of interviews, we're gonna let the audience ask some questions to Dr. Scott. So if you have a question, we're gonna ask We'll just get you to raise your hand. We'll have someone bring you a microphone. Uh, wait for the microphone to get there. Then you can ask your question and then we'll move forward from there. So who's got a question? Everyone jumped at the exact same time. They were just like, yes, I have a question. There we go. Good evening and thank you so much for engaging us in the historical uh, background of the Big Nine. I wonder, as a native of Chattanooga who did not hear about Bessie Smith until I was older, how and how did you become aware of her impact, her story, and your love of the blues? So, I when I'm not writing about history, I sing. So I've been singing for a long period of time. But I found Bessie Smith when I was, I would say when I was in high school, um, because my mother had all these, you know, albums with, I remember there was a photo or a sketch of Bessie Smith across a chaise lounge with a feather in her hair, and I wanted to know, who is this woman? And then I started taking classes in undergrad um, and heard Lost Your Head Blues. And the way that she talked about, you know, her lost love, was just like what I was listening to at the time, like the song by Lauryn Hill, right? So it kind of echoed what I was listening to at that current moment on the radio. And then when I got into graduate school, I was um, interested in African-American history really largely, took a class on biography, and the only biography that was on the list of readings 
um, that had anything to do with the arts was um, Chris Albertson's Bessie Smith. And so I came across that book and I read it um, and I got to a couple of pages in and said she grew up in abject poverty in Chattanooga. And then you flip the page and she's the Empress of the Blues. And I'm like, one paragraph about Chattanooga? Who was this woman? Where did she come from? What is it like to grow up in abject poverty and then become the highest paid African-American woman in the country by 1920s? So it was kind of, I'm always, I'm just nosy. <laughs> in all honesty, I want to know how did we get here from there. It's, it's nosy. And I've been doing you know, black music history and black urban history ever since. That was in 2000 is when I started. Thank you. Next question. Hi. I was wondering if you would expound a little bit more on how you teach students about the foundation that blues was for rock and roll. Um, I was taken back to the time I went to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland, and before you got to Elton John and Billy Joel and ABBA, there was an entire wall as you walked in, black and white photos of the great blues musicians without explanation, but I knew vaguely that that was the foundation of rock and roll. So I thought that was like an incredible beginning. And I was wondering what else you would have to share about having students understand that that is where it came from. Sure, sure. So I usually take them on a musical journey in class so they can kind of hear the similarities for themselves. The question that I get most often, and most recently since last semester, and in my black history class was, so what you know, do you know about Elvis? This is a black history class, right? It wasn't focused on Elvis. But I knew what the question they were asking was, where are his rhythms and sounds coming from, right? And are you going to tell us this is just a story of cultural theft? Like, or I'm like, it's borrowing, it's sharing within the musical community, separate from the recording community, which is cultural theft, <laughs> separate from that, live performance. People are listening to each other's songs and borrowing influences all the time. And so if I wanted them to understand early rock songs, um, I'll play them early blues, I'll play them early gospel, um, and I'll speed it up, right? If I want them to know what a rock song or our early R&B song sound is like, I'll play them a Mahalia Jackson song, right? And I'm like, listen to the vamp. That's blues, right? How does blues link to gospel? How does blues and gospel come together and then create rock and roll, right? So they can hear it for themselves, separate from just the lyrics, just like hearing the rhythms and kind of being there. Um, and then they realize that some of the music that they currently listen to is all linked back to blues, right? Blues, jazz, rock and roll, even independent music, all has those same basic rhythms. And so, I, you know, if you let them do their own exploring, they usually come to their conclusions by themselves, as opposed to me going, you must learn about the blues. I just let them kind of be nosy like I was <laughs> and fall into it. Other questions? Got one in the back there. It's like I can't see any of you, so it's just like I'm just talking very, it to is, the board. It's very bright up here. <laughs> hey, uh, I was wondering, uh, when she left Chattanooga to pursue her career and, and the fame, uh, was it after she became uh, successful in, in New York and Chicago. Was that known here in Chattanooga? And did she ever uh, return to Chattanooga to perform or to, um, I don't know, do, do things for, for, for the betterment of the community at, at all? So I always say that Chattanooga um, was always Bessie Smith's home. She never completely left it. 
Um, when she went to go join the vaudeville circuit, or the pre-vaudeville circuit in 1912, um, she would send money back to her family who lived here. Um, when she finally recorded and started to make it big, she took her two older sisters up with her to Philadelphia, which is where she actually lived, Viola and Tenny. And then her other family members, particularly her oldest brother, Andrew, remained in Chattanooga. So she came back and forth to see her brother and her sister-in-law and her nieces and nephews all the time. But because the Toba circuit was based in Chattanooga, she was a headliner on this black vaudeville circuit and played the Liberty Theater often. So she never forgot about her community, but in terms of um, like singing to fundraise and that type of stuff, it wasn't necessarily fundraising for things here in Chattanooga, but she sang for things like um, the fund to support the Scottsboro Boys, for example, right? So she did a lot of private philanthropy that we don't talk about when we talk about the Bessie Smith image. We talk about the wild sexual woman. Um, but we don't talk about the fact that she was really a political activist in her own way, in her own blues queen way. So she, Chattanooga was always her home. All right. Well, um, I guess that concludes the Q&A portion of our program. Let's give the lovely Dr. Scott another round of applause. Thank you so much for being here. That was great. All right. Now I'd like to turn the stage over to the wonderful Nashawn Calloway, who's going to sing some Bessie Smith classics for you. Take it away. You're listening to Songbirds Radio Hour. The first song that we're going to do is a song that Bessie Smith, the first song that she recorded in 1923 when she was discovered by Columbia Records, executive Frank Walker took her back to New York City where she made her first record that sold over 60,000 copies in six months and made her the highest paid black entertainer in the country. And this is Downhearted Blues. Next man. 
And if you know anything about Bessie or if you learned anything about her, you know that um, Bessie had a lot of problems with men, just trying to find a good man, one that was going to do right. She was married for a, a little while, and, you know, she was orphaned by the time she was nine years old. So, really, Bessie was just looking for somebody to just love her and somebody that, that was just going to treat her right. So the next song that we're gonna do is Baby Doll, and then we're gonna follow that up with Baby Won't You Please Come Home.
gonna play for me. Thank you so much to Songbirds for allowing us to come and be a part of tonight. I just wanna introduce the band. This is Miss Sandy Aswin on keys, Mr. Daryl Kelly on drums, Mr. Stanley Elder on bass. I am Nishan Calloway. We are part of a, a band called Sound Advice. You can look us up and we would love to come and play for one of your special functions. Thank you again so much for allowing us to come and be a part tonight. All right, as Nishan plays us out, let's give her another big round of applause. What an absolutely spectacular performance. So as we wrap up the very first episode of the Songbirds Radio Hour, I would like to leave you with this. As you can see from the program tonight, Chattanooga has a rich musical legacy. It is important that we share these amazing stories. These gems help preserve our history and promote our community. These stories are windows into the heart of Chattanooga and a possible way forward. Music has always been an outlet of change and camaraderie. And we here at Songbirds, along with all of you, hope to continue that trend by helping kids find their musical voices and learning how to rock. Well, that's our show for tonight. Thanks so much for coming out. Again, I'd like to thank our guests, Dr. Michelle Scott and Sean Calloway, and especially Zoe and the Vanguard for being a part of the very first Songbirds Radio Hour. We'll see you next time. Songbirds Radio Hour is made possible through a grant from the Riverview Foundation. We are produced and written by Reed Caldwell and Charlie Moss. Live recording by James Snyder. Mix and master by Dran Michael Lewis. Our logo was designed by Mars Michael, and our set was created with help from Alice Heinsen. Additional thanks to Adam Gann and Ray Bassett. Directed and edited by John Dooley. It's a lot of these. <laughs> Oh, me, please.